0: Chapter Thirty Six of East Lyn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. East Lyn by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter Thirty Six. Appearance of a Russian Bear at West Lyn. Mister Carlyle harangued the populace from the balcony of the Buck's Head, a substantial old house. Renowned in the days of posting, now past and gone. Its balcony was an old-fashioned, roomy balcony, painted green, where there was plenty of space for his friends to congregate. He was a persuasive orator, winning his way to ears and hearts, but had he spoken with plums in his mouth, and a stammer on his tongue, and a breakdown at every sentence, the uproarious applause and shouts would be equally rife. Mr. Carlyle was intensely popular in West Lynne, setting aside his candidateship and his oratory, and West Lynne made common cause against Sir Francis Levison. Sir Francis Levison harangued the mob from the Raven, but in a more ignoble manner, for the Raven possessed no balcony, and he was fain to let himself down with a stride and a jump from the first-floor window on the top of the bow-window of the parlor and stand there. The Raven, though a comfortable, old-established and respectable inn, could boast only of casements for its upper windows, and they are not convenient to deliver speeches from. He was wont, therefore, to take his seat on the bow-window, and—that was not altogether convenient either, for it was but narrow, and he hardly dared move an arm or a leg for fear of pitching over the upturned faces. Mr. Drake let himself down also, to support him on one side, and the first day the lawyer supported him on the other for the first day only. For that worthy, being not as high as Sir Francis Levinson's, or Mr. Drake's shoulder, and about five times their breadth, had these two been rolled into one, experienced a slight difficulty in getting back again. It was accomplished at last, Sir Francis pulling him up, and Mr. Drake hoisting him from behind, just as a ladder was being brought out to the rescue amidst shouts of laughter. The stout man wiped the perspiration from his face when he was landed in safety, and recorded a mental vow never to descend from a window again. After that the candidate and his friend shared the shelf between them. The lawyer's name was Rubini, ill-naturedly supposed to be a corruption of Reuben. They stood there one afternoon, Sir Francis's eloquence in full play, but he was a shocking speaker, and the crowd, laughing, hissing, groaning and applauding, blocking up the road. Sir Francis could not complain of one thing that he got no audience, for it was the pleasure of West Lynne extensively to support him in that respect. A few to cheer, a great many to jeer and hiss. Remarkably dense was the mob on this afternoon, for Mr. Carlyle had just concluded his address from the Buck's Head, and the crowd who had been listening to him came rushing up to swell the ranks of the other crowd. They were elbowing, and pushing, and treading on each other's heels, when an open barouche drove suddenly up to scatter them. Its horses wore scarlet and purple rosettes, and one lady, a very pretty one, sat inside of it, Mrs. Carlyle. But the crowd could not be so easily scattered. It was too thick. The carriage could advance but at a snail's pace, and now and then came to a standstill also, till the confusion should be subsided, for where was the use in wasting words? He did not bow to Barbara. He remembered the result of his having done so to Miss Carlyle and the little interlude of the pond had washed most of his impudence out of him. He remained at his post, not looking at Barbara, not looking at anything in particular, waiting till the interruption should have passed. Barbara, under cover of her dainty lace parasol, turned her eyes upon him. At that very moment he raised his right hand, slightly shook his head back, and tossed his hair off his brow. His hand, ungloved, was white and delicate as a lady's and his rich diamond ring gleamed in the sun. The pink flush on Barbara's cheek deepened to a crimson damask, and her brow contracted with a remembrance of pain. The very action Richard described, the action he was always using at East Lynn, I believe from my heart that the man is thorn, that Richard was laboring under some mistake when he said he knew Sir Francis Levison. She let her hands fall upon her knee as she spoke, heedless of the candidate, heedless of the crowd, heedless of all save her own troubled thoughts. A hundred respected salutations were offered her. She answered them mechanically. A shout was raised, "'Long live Carlyle! Carlyle, for ever!' Barbara bowed her pretty head on either side, and the carriage at length got on. The parting of the crowd brought Mr. Dill, who had come to listen for once to the speech of the second man, and Mr. Ebenezer James, close to each other. Mr. Ebenezer James was one who, for the last twelve or fifteen years, had been trying his hand at many trades, and had not come out particularly well, at any. A rolling stone gathers no moss. First he had been clerk to Mr. Carlyle. Next he had been seduced into joining the corps of the Royal Theatre at Limborough. Then he turned auctioneer, then travelling in the oil and colour line, then a parson, the urgent pastor of some new sect, then omnibus-driver then collector of the water-rate, and now he was clerk again, not in Mr. Carlyle's office, but in that of Ball and Treadman, other solicitors of West Lynne. A good-humoured, good-natured, free-of-mannered, idle chap was Mr. Ebenezer James, and that was the worst that could be urged against him, save that he was sometimes out at pocket and out at elbows. His father was a respectable man, and he had made money in trade, but he had married a second wife, had a second family— and his eldest son did not come in for much of the paternal money, though he did for a large share of the paternal anger. "'Well, Ebenezer, and how goes the world with you?' cried Mr. Dill by way of salutation. "'Jogging on, it never gets to a trot. "'Didn't I see you turning into your father's house yesterday?' "'I pretty soon turned out of it again. I'm like the monkey when I venture there, get more kicks than halfpence. Hush, old gentleman, we interrupt the eloquence.' Of course, the eloquence applied to Sir Francis Levison, and they set themselves to listen, Mr. Dill with a serious face, Mr. Ebenezer with a grinning one. But soon a jostle and movement carried them to the outside of the crowd, out of sight of the speaker, though not entirely out of hearing. By these means they had a view of the street, and discerned something advancing to them, which they took for a Russian bear on its hind legs. "'I'll be blessed!' uttered Mr. Ebenezer James, after a prolonged pause of staring consternation. "'If I don't believe, it's Bethel!' "'Bethel!' repeated Mr. Dill, gazing at the approaching figure. "'What has he been doing to himself?' "'Mr. Otway Bethel it was, just arrived from foreign parts in his travelling costume, something shaggy, terminating all over with tails. A wild object, he looked, and Mr. Dill rather backed as he drew near, as if fearing he was a real animal which might bite him. "'What's your name?' cried he. "'It used to be Bethel,' replied the wild man, holding out his hand to Mr. Dill. "'So you are in the world, James, and kicking yet?' "'And hope to kick in it for some time to come,' replied Mr. James. "'Where did you hail from last? A settlement at the North Pole?' "'Didn't get quite as far. What's the row here?' "'When did you arrive, Mr. Otway?' inquired old Dill." "'Now, four o'clock train. I say, what's up?' "'An election, that's all,' said Mr. Ebenezer. Atley went and kicked the bucket. "'I don't ask about the election. I heard all about that at the railway station,' returned Otway Bethel, impatiently. "'What's this?' waving his hand at the crowd. "'One of the candidates wasting breath and words. Levison.' "'I say,' repeated Otway Bethel, looking at Mr. Dill. "'Wasn't it rather—' "'rather of the ratherest, for him to oppose Carlyle?' "'Infamous, contemptible,' was the old gentleman's excited answer. "'But he'll get his deserts yet, Mr. Otway. "'They have already begun. "'He was treated to a ducking yesterday in Justice Hare's green pond.' "'And he did look a miserable devil when he came out, "'trailing through the streets,' added Mr. Ebenezer, "'while Otway Bethel burst into a laugh. "'He was smothered in some hot blankets at the raven, "'and a pint of burned brandy put into him.' he seems all right to-day. Will he go in and win? Chut, win against Carlyle? He not the ghost of a chance. And government, if it is the government who put him on, must be a pack of fools. They can't know the influence of Carlyle. Bethel, is that style of costume the fashion where you come from? For slender pockets. I'll sell them to you now, James, at half price. Let's get a look at this Levison, though. I've never seen the fellow." Another interruption of the crowd, even as he spoke, caused by the railway van bringing up some luggage. They contrived, in the confusion, to push themselves to the front, not far from Sir Francis. Otway Bethel stared at him in unqualified amazement. "'Why, what brings him up here? What is he doing?' "'Who?' He pointed his finger. "'The one with the white handkerchief in his hand.' "'That is Sir Francis.' "'No,' uttered Bethel, a whole world of astounded meaning in his tone. "'By Jove! "'He, Sir Francis Levison!' At that moment their eyes met, Francis Levison's and Otway Bethel's. Otway Bethel raised his shaggy hat in salutation, and Sir Francis appeared completely scared. Only for an instant did he lose his presence of mind. The next, his eyeglass was stuck in his eye, and he turned on Mr. Bethel with a hard, haughty stare, "'as much as to say, "'Who are you, fellow, that you should take such a liberty?' "'But his cheeks and lips were growing as white as marble. "'Do you know Levison, Mr. Otway?' inquired old Dill. "'A little. Once.' "'When he was not Levison, but somebody else?' laughed Mr. Ebenezer James. "'Eh, Bethel?' Bethel turned as reproving a stare on Mr. Ebenezer, as the baronet had just turned on him. "'What do you mean, pray? Mind your own business.' A nod to old Dill, and he turned off and disappeared, taking no further notice of James. The old gentleman questioned the latter. "'What was that little bit of by-play, Mr. Ebenezer?' "'Nothing much,' laughed Mr. Ebenezer. "'Only he,' nodding towards Sir Francis, "'was not always the great man he is now.' "'Ah! I have held my tongue about it, for it's no affair of mine, but I don't mind letting you into the secret. Would you believe that that grand baronet there— would-be member for West Lynn, used, years ago, to dodge about Abbey Wood. Mad after Afy Hallijohn? He didn't call himself Levison then. Mr. Dill felt as if a hundred pins and needles were pricking at his memory, for there rose up in it certain doubts and troubles, touching Richard Hare and one thorn. He laid his eager hand upon the other's arm. Ebenezer James. What did he call himself? "'A dandy, then, as he is now. "'He used to come galloping down the swainson road at dusk, "'tie his horse in the woods, and monopolize Miss Afy. "'How do you know this?' "'Because I've seen it a dozen times. "'I was spoony after Afy myself in those days, "'and went down there a good deal in an evening. "'If it hadn't been for him, and perhaps that murdering villain, Dick Hare, "'Afy would have listened to me. "'Not that she cared for Dick, but, you see, they were gentlemen.' I am thankful to the stars now for my luck in escaping her. With her for a wife I should have been in a pickle always. As it is, I do get out of it once in a while. Did you know then that he was Francis Levison? Not I. He called himself Thorne, I tell you. When he came down to offer himself for member and oppose Carlyle, I was thunderstruck, like Bethel was a minute ago. Ho, ho, said I, so Thorne's defunct, and Levison has risen.' what had Otway Bethel to do with him. "'Nothing that I know of. Only Bethel was fond of the woods also. After other game than affy, though. And they have seen Thorn often. You saw that he recognized him.' thorn Levison, I mean—did not appear to like the recognition,' said Mr. Dill. "'Who would, in his position?' laughed Ebenezer James. "'I don't like to be reminded of many a wild scrape of my past life, in my poor station.' And what would it be for Levinson, were it to come out that he once called himself Thorn, and came running after Miss Affie Hallijohn? Why did he call himself Thorn? Why disguise his own name? Not knowing, can't say. Is his name Levison or is it Thorn? Nonsense, Mr. Ebenezer. Mr. Dill, bursting with the strange news he had heard, endeavored to force his way through the crowd that he might communicate it to Mr. Carlyle. The crowd was, however, too dense for him, and he had to wait the opportunity of escaping with what patience he might. When it came, he made his way to the office, and entered Mr. Carlyle's private room. That gentleman was seated at his desk, signing letters. "'Why, Dill, you're out of breath.' "'Well, I may be, Mr. Archibald. I've been listening to the most extraordinary statement. I've found out about Thorne. Who do you think he is?' Mr. Carlyle put down his pen and looked full into the old man's face. He had never seen him so excited. "'It's that man, Levison.' "'I do not understand you,' said Mr. Carlyle. He did not. It was as good as Hebrew to him. "'The Levison of to-day, your opponent, is the thorn who went after Afy Hallijohn. It is so, Mr. Archibald.' "'It cannot be,' slowly uttered Mr. Carlyle. Thought upon thought working havoc with his brain. Where did you hear about this? Mr. Dill told his tale Otway Bethel's recognition of him, Sir Francis Levison's scared paleness, for he had noticed that, Mr. Ebenezer's revelation. The point in it all that finally settled most upon Mr. Carlyle was the thought that if Levison were indeed the man, he could not be instrumental in bringing him to justice. Bethel has denied to me more than once that he knew Thorne, or was aware of such a man being in existence, observed Mr. Carlyle. He must have had a purpose in it, then, returned Mr. Dill. They knew each other to-day. Levison recognized him for certain, although he carried it off with a high hand, pretending not. And it was not as Levison, but as Thorne that Bethel recognized him? There's little doubt of that. He did not mention the name Thorne but he was evidently struck with astonishment at hearing that it was Levison. If they have not some secret between them, Mr. Archibald, I'll never believe my own eyes again. Mrs. Hare's opinion is that Bethel had to do with the murder, said Mr. Carlyle, in a low tone. If that's their secret, Bethel knows the murderer, rely upon it, was the answer. Mr. Archibald, it seems to me that now or never is the time to clear up Richard. Aye. "'But how to set about it?' responded Mr. Carlyle. Meanwhile Barbara had proceeded home in her carriage, her brain as busy as Mr. Carlyle's, perhaps more troubled. Her springing lightly and hastily out the moment it stopped, disdaining the footman's arm, her compressed lips and absent countenance, proved that her resolution was set upon some plan of action. William and Madame Vine met her in the hall. "'We have seen Dr. Martin, Mrs. Carlyle.' And he says... "'I cannot stay to here now, William. "'I will see you later, madame.' "'She ran upstairs to her dressing-room. "'Madame Vine followed her with reproachful eyes. "'Why should she care?' thought madame. "'It is not her child.' "'Throwing her parasol on one chair, her gloves on another, "'down sat Barbara to her writing-table. "'I will write to him. "'I will have him here, if it be but for an hour,' "'she passionately exclaimed. "'This shall be, so far, cleared up.' I am as sure as can be that it is that man, the very action Richard described, and there was the diamond ring. For better, for worse, I will send for him, but it will not be for worse if God is with us. She dashed off a letter, getting up, ere she had well begun it, to order her carriage round again. She would trust no one but herself to put it in the post. "'My dear Mr. Smith, we want you here. Something has arisen that it is necessary to see you upon.' You can get here by Saturday. Be in these grounds, near the covered walk, that evening at dusk. Ever yours, B. And the letter was addressed to Mr. Smith, of some street in Liverpool, the address furnished by Richard. Very cautious to see, was Barbara. She even put Mr. Smith inside the letter. Now stop, cried Barbara to herself, as she was folding it. I ought to send him a five-pound note, for he may not have the means to come, and I don't think I have one of that amount in the house. She looked into her secretary, not a single five-pound note out of the room she ran, meeting Joyce, who was coming along the corridor. Do you happen to have a five-pound note, Joyce? No, ma'am, not by me. I dare say Madame Vine has. I paid her last week, and there were two five-pound notes amongst it and away went Barbara into the grey parlour. Could you lend me a five-pound note, Madame Vine? I have occasion to enclose one in a letter, and find I do not possess one. Madame Vine went to her room to get it. Barbara waited. She asked William what Dr. Martin had said. He tried my chest with though I forget what they call it—and he said I must be a brave boy, and take my cod-liver oil well, and port wine, and everything I liked that was good. And he said he should be at West Lynn next Wednesday afternoon, and I am to go there, and he would call in and see me. "'Where are you to meet him?' "'He said, either at Papa's office or at Aunt Cornelia's, as we might decide. "'Madame fixed it for Papa's office, for she thought he might like to see Dr. Martin. "'I say, Mamma, "'What?' asked Barbara. "'Madame Vine has been crying ever since. "'Why should she?' "'I'm sure I don't know. "'Crying?' "'Yes, but she wipes her eyes under her spectacles, and thinks I don't see her. "'I know I am very ill, but why should she cry for that?' "'Nonsense, William.' "'I told you you were very ill.' "'Nobody. "'I suppose I am,' he thoughtfully added. "'If Joyce or Lucy cried, now there would be some sense to it, "'for they have known me all my life.' "'You are so apt to fancy things. "'You are always doing it. "'It is not likely that Madame would be crying because you are ill.' Madame came in with the bank-note. Barbara thanked her, ran upstairs, and in another minute or two was in her carriage. She was back again in dressing when the gentleman returned to dinner." Mr. Carlyle came upstairs. Barbara, like most persons who do things without reflection, having had time to cool down from her ardor, was doubting whether she had acted wisely in sending so precipitately for Richard. She carried her doubt and care to her husband, her sure refuge in perplexity. Archibald, I fear I have done a foolish thing. He laughed. I fear we all do that at times, Barbara. What is it? He had seated himself in one of Barbara's favorite low chairs, and she stood before him, leaning on his shoulder, her face a little behind, so that he could not see it. In her delicacy she would not look at him while she spoke what she was going to speak. "'It is something that I had upon my mind for years, and I did not like to tell it to you.' "'For years?' "'You remember that night, years ago, when Richard was at the grove in disguise?' "'Which night, Barbara?' "'He came more than once,' "'The night—the night that Lady Isabel quitted East Lynne, she answered, not knowing how better to bring it to his recollection, and she stole her hand lovingly into his as she said it. Richard came back after his departure, saying he had met Thorn in Bean Lane. He described the particular motion of the hand as he threw back his hair from his brow. He spoke of the white hand and the diamond ring, how it glittered in the moonlight. "'Do you remember?' "'I do.' The motion appeared perfectly familiar to me, for I had seen it repeatedly used by one then staying at East Lynne. I wondered you did not recognize it. From that night I had little doubt as to the identity of Thorne. I believed that he and Captain Levison were one. A pause. Why did you not tell me so, Barbara? How could I speak of that man to you, at that time? Afterwards, when Richard was here, that snowy winter's day, he asserted that he knew Sir Francis Levison, that he had seen him and Thorn together, and that put me off the scent. But today, as I was passing the raven, in the carriage, going very slow on account of the crowd, he was perched out there, addressing the people, and I saw the very same action, the old action that I had used to see. Barbara paused. Mr. Carlyle did not interrupt her. I feel a conviction that they are the same, that Richard must have been under some unaccountable mistake in saying that he knew Francis Levison. Besides, who but he, in evening dress, would have been likely to go through Bean Lane that night? It leads to no houses, but one wishing to avoid the high road could get into it from these grounds, and so on to West Lynne. He must have gone back directly on foot to West Lynne to get the post-carriage, as was proved, and he would naturally go through Bean Lane. Forgive me, Archibald. "'for recalling these things to you. "'But I feel so sure that Levison and Thorne are one.' "'I know they are,' he quietly said. "'Barbara, in her astonishment, drew back and stared him in the face. "'A face of severe dignity it was just then. "'Oh, Archibald, did you know it at that time?' "'I did not know it until this afternoon. "'I never suspected it.' "'I wonder you did not. "'I have wondered often.' "'So do I now. "'Dill.' Ebenezer James and Otway Bethel who came home today were standing before the raven listening to his speech when Bethel recognized him-not as Levison he was infinitely astonished to find he was Levinson. Levison they say was scared of the recognition and changed color Bethel would give no explanation and moved away but James told Dill that Levison was the man Thorne who used to be after afy hallijohn how did you know breathlessly asked barbara because Mr. Ebenezer was after Afy himself, and repeatedly saw a thorn in the wood. Barbara, I believe now that it was Levison who killed Hallijohn, but I should like to know what Bethel had to do with it. Barbara clasped her hands. "'How strange it is!' she exclaimed in some excitement. Mama told me yesterday that she was convinced something or other was going to turn up relative to the murder. She had had the most distressing dream, she said, connected with Richard and Bethel and somebody else— whom she appeared to know in the dream, but could not recognize or remember when she was awake. She was ill as could be. She does put such faith in these wretched dreams. One would think you did also, Barbara, by your vehemence. No, no, you know better. But it is strange, you must acknowledge that it is, that, so sure as anything fresh happens touching on the subject of the murder, so sure is a troubled dream the forerunner of it. Mamma does not have them at other times." Bethel denied to you that he knew Thorn. I know he did. And now it turns out that he does know him, and he is always in mamma's dreams, none more prominent in them than Bethel. But, Archibald, I am not telling you. I have sent for Richard. You have. I felt sure that Levinson was Thorne. I did not expect that others would recognize him, and I acted on the impulse of the moment and wrote to Richard, telling him to be here on Saturday evening. The letter is gone." Well, we must shelter him as best we can. Archibald, dear Archibald, what can be done to clear him? she asked, the tears rising to her eyes. Being Levison, I cannot act. What? she uttered. Not act? Not act for Richard? He bent his clear, truthful eyes upon her. My dearest, how can I? She looked a little rebellious, and the tears fell. "'you have not considered, Barbara. "'Any one in the world but Levison. "'It would look like my own revenge.' "'Forgive me,' she softly whispered. "'You are always right. "'I did not think of it in that light. "'But what steps do you imagine can be taken?' "'It is a case encompassed with difficulties,' "'mused Mr. Carlyle. "'Let us wait until Richard comes. "'Do you happen to find a five-pound note "'in your pocket, Archibald? "'I had not one to send to him "'and borrowed it from Madame Vine.' He took it out of his pocket-book and gave it to her. End of chapter 36, part 1